I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. Uh, I'm Alexander Rose. I'm the executive director at the Long Now Foundation. Um, as probably many of you heard today, there was a sort of a landing. Um, but uh, over, and it's almost 15 years ago, uh, the head of the Rosetta Mission Space Program, I believe, was doing a vanity search. And if you remember what 1999 was like in the web, there was like there was that one page that had all of it on it. Um, and so they, he came up with the, our Rosetta project, which predated his in terms of uh, web presence. And then he emailed us out of the blue and said, oh, well, you have this really awesome uh, disk with all the languages on it. And we have this spacecraft called Rosetta. Would you like to put one of these disks on the spacecraft? And it was 1999. We had no idea, like, would the mission even get off the ground or anything like that? But uh, we did make an early prototype disk, and uh, Jim Mason, the director at the time, uh, flew to French Guiana and had it uh, installed on the spacecraft. And then it didn't launch because they missed their window. And then it launched three years later, and then spent the last 10 years traveling to Comet 67P. And um, just today, after being, the, being orbiting that comet for a few months, they sent down the lander. And uh, these are the, the shots that we have of the lander as it uh, descended from the spacecraft. And that was the approach, the last approach shot that was uh, publicly released. Anyway, they, uh, they lost signal after it went down for a little bit, then got signal back. Says, and it sounds like it bounced a little bit didn't uh, harpoon the surface as expected, um, but is on the surface and they're waiting for the comet to come back around to evaluate where it's at. But uh, that's the status of the Rosetta Project. I think with the, the level of success that we've had with the Mar last Mars landing and, uh, and even with this one, even if it's not a total success, the level of difficulty of slingshotting around multiple planets and coming up to the same speed and trajectory of a comet and then landing on it with almost no gravity is, is probably generally underappreciated. Um, <laughs> and I, I think it fits well into the topic tonight of the Technium that, that, that we're now doing things that, that are just totally impossible and that they take networks upon networks upon networks of people to achieve and of machine systems that we don't fully understand. Uh, evening, I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. Uh, when Drew Endy was on the stage a couple months ago, he was describing when the people who were founding the discipline of synthetic biology uh, were asking themselves, how do we actually do this? <laughs> how do we make a new discipline grow and be responsible and be fun and engage people. And they um, asked around and they talked to Lynn Conway, who was one of the great designers of computer chips, and she said, oh, go meta. By which she meant, you know, go up a, go up a level. 
which worked out very well for them, and it led them to doing the IGM uh, jamborees of bringing all the kids in the world to compete, building the organisms, and racing their racing them conceptually and in real life. And uh, synthetic biology is off and running and is continuing to uh, observe itself from an increasingly meta angle. Well, Kevin Kelly is a founder, founding editor of Wired Magazine. He's been looking at digital technology and culture for quite a while. And um, nobody does a better job of going meta than Kevin has. Um, an important book he wrote a couple years ago is called What Technology Wants. And I think one fair answer to that is technology wants Kevin Kelly to try to figure it out and explain what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Kevin. <laughs> Yeah, that, that is indeed. I think uh, today, uh, humanity's a little bit bigger than it was yesterday with the landing of the, uh, of the probe. That's sort of what the technium is about. What I wanted to do this evening was to take an idea that has been around for a long time that's sort of been in the realm of poetry and to try to treat it seriously. That idea is the idea of a planetary technological superorganism. It's a terrible set of words, but we don't have very many good words for that. And what I'm going to try and do is to add some words to it. It's an idea that has many different names and has been around for a long time. And what I'm trying to do is to apply, is to move it into the realm of science, to try to talk about it definitely, and to, and, to, and to actually take the idea seriously. So superorganism is a, we think we know what that means. It means something like a beehive, a bee colony. Ed Wilson wrote a book about the superorganism of ants and bees. Bees are interesting because they cannot regulate the temperature in their own bodies, but they can regulate the temperature of a hive. They live for only six weeks, therefore they're Memory only lasts for six weeks, but the memory of a beehive can be for years. We know about swarms, which are like a murmuring of uh, starlings. They can act almost as a single shape as it moves through the air. How they do that with no leader. It's an emergent phenomena. We know about termites, another social insect that can create this architecture that is, again, thermoregulating, it actually has air conditioning, ductwork, and of course the scale of this thing is way beyond even what a termite can perceive, and yet they can build these things with great accuracy. That's a superorganism. And a reef, which is an interesting superorganism because it's many species, not just a single species. And the reef itself is being protected by and, and cultivated by the individual separate species who are, of course, interested in their own survival but are actually doing things to maintain this very large structure. And that's another example of a superorganism. I, I wanted a more technical definition of superorganism, and even um, Ed Wilson's book on the superorganism doesn't give us one, so I went to Wikipedia 
And uh, I found that was a pretty good definition, a collection of agents acting in concert to produce phenomena governed by the collective. The only trouble is, is I wrote that. <laughs> that. They were quoting me, which really dampened my confidence in the Wikipedia. It's like, they're supposed to be smarter than me. So, the, uh, we don't really have a, I mean, uh, we have an idea about superorganisms. So I'm using this word and I'm admitting the fact that it's actually kind of fuzzy, it's actually kind of vague. We, I wrote a book, Out of Control, which was sort of trying to look at the phenomena of emergent behavior that comes from collections of agents, and that's where this quote comes from. But there is something about um, these organizations some, that exhibit some of these four behaviors, which is that they tend to regulate something to, keep, to, 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 to kind of uh, bring things back in, into some kind of, of uh, range. So there is, there's a sense in which they're self-governing. They also exhibit power law scaling, which I'll mention a bit later, which is this idea that there is, um, there's um, an association between the different scales. So there's, there's a sense of things operating at multiple, multiple levels. There's also a persistent disequilibrium, which is a fancy word to say that the superorganism is never at rest. It's always slightly out of kilter, and it's always catching itself. So there's a dynamicism about it, that it isn't static. And lastly, of course, there's emergent behaviors, which mean that there are things that it does that cannot be found in any of the parts. So famously, I mean, you could look at the behavior of a single bee forever and never really see the behavior of a hive in it. That's some of the qualities of a, of a superorganism. And I would apply that now to technology. And this is a slide inspired by Matt Ridley, who was a speaker here on the seminar before. And if you take these two objects, we're roughly the same size. The one on the left, you could probably make in a good weekend with some instruction. The one on the right, you not only could not make, but even everybody here, as smart as we all are, could not make together because it requires a network of other technologies to support it. So that technology, the mouse, is made up of hundreds of technologies, and they themselves are all requiring hundreds of other technologies to support it. And so the entire thing becomes saturated with different dependencies of technologies supporting other technologies. And I'm, I'm really a fan of this art project done by a guy named um, Thomas Thwaites, I think how you pronounce it. It's called the Toaster Project. And he decided to try and make a toaster from scratch. <laughs> from scratch, meaning like from the ore, from the oil. And that's his suitcase of copper ore. And it turns out that this is really difficult to do. Smelting copper is incredibly toxic. It was um, just even getting the ore was, was like a, a whole year in getting permission to move it, whatever it is. And so 
he got this ore, and he did smelt it in his backyard using kind of um, uh, some other technologies, but keeping it, keeping it to a minimum. And uh, he was actually able to cast this uh, framework. This was the basic mechanism, <laughs> which was a big deal. Believe me, this is a huge project. And then he actually got some crude oil, which he did not get himself, but he purchased, which was okay, it's a little bit. And he started casting the plastic case of it. And he was carving these wood blocks, and he was pouring it in, and there's, an, there's his, his case. Um, and he had made other parts. Um, eventually, this is the toaster <laughs> that he made from scratch. It's, it's, it's in England, so it's a three-prong plug. It's 220 volts. And uh, it worked for 30 seconds. Okay? Um, but just to kind just to kind of show you, I think the, the great, for me, the great reveal that he did was he put it in a Best Buy-like store. <laughs> at the real cost. So these other toasters are about $30 and his was $2,000. And the point of this was, I don't know what the point of it is, but what I take the point of it is, to show you the depth of the support, the subsidy that we have with technology. So when you hear maker people talk about they're gonna make something, it's, they're gonna make a little bit of it something. They're gonna add the last little bit. They're gonna buy screws, or they're gonna buy some copper, or they're gonna buy plastic, which has a whole deep network of technologies that have supported that. And of course, the point of these technologies is they form networks in the sense that they're all self-supporting. To make a saw, you need to have a hammer to hammer the saw blade. And to have a hammer, you, you need the saw to cut the wood. So these things are self-supporting. And the more complex the technology, the more self-supporting and self-dependent it is. You might think of these things as, as any invention, any complex invention, as a network of dependence and self-sustaining different technologies. So we have networks of these. Nothing is really a standalone except for maybe that stone hammer. Anything complex in today's tech world is a network of things. And that's also true for ideas. Ideas are not standalone ideas. Ideas are a network of other ideas that support them and are required to make them happen. And so usually a new idea is just the last little bit that's added to a network that already exists. And that's why simultaneous independent inventions is the norm. They happen again and again because any idea, new idea, is gonna be resting on a whole network of other inventions. So if we take that idea of the toaster as being dependent on lots of other technologies, and we keep looking further and further back, we come to this huge web of all the technologies together, from concrete to plumbing to the electrical wires running through this place. All these things together in the furthest abstraction, and um, that's what I call the technium. That, that's not, the technology is singular, that collective, that superorganism, so to speak, of all these things is what I call the technium, to give, to give it a word so we, know we, so we can use and talk about it. So the technium is that 
is that, is that web of all these things together that are requiring each other to continue. And just as there are many parts in any very complex thing, and the parts themselves are smaller than the whole, so uh, this is a diagram of a, of a cell, so the cell has thousands and thousands of parts and thousands and thousands of metabolic pathways, which this is a diagram of, and none of those parts are living, and yet the cell itself has life. Okay, so, so, so there, there, there is a way in which even the most complex systems we know are made up of parts that don't exhibit any of the evidence or any of the behaviors of the whole. And so a, a switch is not alive in any sense of the word, any more than a, than a, a metabolic uh, compound in a cell is. But I'm suggesting that the entire superorganism of all the technology of the technium itself can in some ways exhibit lifelike behaviors. And that technological superorganism is this thing that we are in the middle of. We're surrounded by it right now. Our lives depend on it. Most of our jobs are involved in it. It's most of what we care about these days to some extent. And that is what we're in. And I'm trying to take it seriously, this idea. And um, I'm calling it the technium. That's, that's my shorthand for it. But what I'm not talking about is Gaia. So Gaia is another idea very much like this, started by James Lovelock and um, Lynn Margulis, which suggests that the natural habitat of the planet also is a superorganism. It also exhibits its own kind of emergent behavior. It, it acts as if it was its own organism, in the sense that it's self-regulating. And the, and the claims of, of Gaia are very strong. It's not just that it's all acting together, but in the fact that this system of life on this planet is actually trying to bend the entire planet to be more conducive to more life. It's actually having an effect, or has had an effect, on the geological structure of the Earth. That life, the four billion years of life, have actually affected the landscape, the mountains, the weather, Continental drift, all those things actually have been affected in some ways influenced by life on this earth, by Gaia, as it forms a system. So that's the strong version of Gaia. And that's not quite what I'm talking about right now, although I'll come back to it. I'm also not talking about the world brain, which was H.G. Wells' term for that contraption, that, that, that large thing that we seem to be making even when he wrote this book almost a century ago. And um, what he had in mind was something that we would now recognize more closer to the web. But it was, again, he was uh, talking mostly about just the mechanical aspects of what we're making. And I'm not quite talking about that in this idea. And I'm not talking about the new sphere which is a term by Leroy and Pierre de Chardin, the French, um, one is the French priest, anthropologist, 
um, was this idea of, of what we might think of today as more of like a human collective consciousness or global consciousness. It's about the seven billion humans and our collective presence together. That, that's the maybe one version of the new sphere. So I'm not talking about just that either. I'm talking about, and I'm not talking about the singularity exactly, though I will come back to this because there isn't actually an element of the singularity, but I don't mean it in the way that, that um, singularity university, say, might think about it. There's a little bit to that, and so I'll, I will turn to that. So it's something in between all these things. It's this very large machine that's made up of humans. It's actually made up of a lot of technology, but it also has an influence and a role, and it's tied to the natural world as well. So I'm trying to t say, like, let's imagine if this was a new critter, a new organism. Let's treat it as if it was an organism, and I'm going to try to describe it as if I was a biologist. If you were finding it in a Petri dish, and you were trying to say, what, what can we say about it? And I think um, the, the sort of little task I give myself is imagining I'm a, a, you know, from another planet, and I'm going to go through, and I'm trying to catalog all the civilizations in our galaxy. And um, how would I make a taxonomy, and where would I, how would I describe what we have? Could, could, could we do it in, in a way as if I was a biologist on a field trip? So we, you know, first question is, are there planetary civilization classifications? And actually, there, there are a bunch. I collect all, all the ones that I knew about. Um, there's a lot of them. And, and, and the kind of example of one is um, um, Kardashev scale, which was about the energy of different planets. And so um, roughly, if, you could, if a civilization could control all the solar energy from, this, from that sun that came onto the planet, that was one. If it could control all the solar energy be giving off by that star, that was a two. If it could harness all the energy in a galaxy, that was three. And Carl Sagan kind of turned that into a little uh, formula, and he estimated that the Earth today, we were about 0.74. That's just a single dimension. And I collected all the other known planetary classification systems that I could find. The most elaborate one was from Star Trek. <laughs> and they had a lot of different ones um, in their imaginary world. But all of them were on single dimensions. And of course, it's very obvious in a, a taxonomy of civilizations, the planetary civilizations, that, that you wouldn't have just a single axis. You'd have many, many different um, dimensions. And so it would be a, a matrix. But that's, we haven't gotten that far. So we don't really have very good classification schemes. But in my search for trying to describe what we have, I was asking myself, what can we say about this planetary system in a global sense? And it turns out that whenever you ask, like, what do we have globally? X, take X and we try to find the global dimensions of it, that actually there's a very uniform answer, which is we have no idea. <laughs> we, have, we don't know. The one, the one metric that we've measured to some reliability is population of humans, and even that, um, as we see because we're revising these numbers all the time, we don't even know that. But how many telephones is there on, on the planet? How many miles of road? How many schools? How much fresh water? The answer is that we don't really have any idea. And I know that a little bit because um, I was involved in a project with Stuart and Ryan 
to try to catalog all the living species on this planet. It seems a very reasonable thing to do. If we found life on another planet, say Mars, one of the first things we would do is send the pros back and try to do a systematic survey of all the life that would be on that planet, but we haven't done it to our own home planet. We think we know about 5%. The 1.8 million species that we have discovered, we think maybe about 5%, and there are some methods that we can make the estimate, but we basically have no idea. We certainly don't know what's in the deep oceans. And these are mostly small things. I mean, there's no new, very few new birds we'll discover, but new insects and, and below, smaller than that, we have no idea. That, unfortunately, is the answer to most of the questions we have about the planet as a whole. And the fact that we don't know even the species is, is, is really important because um, very early on, we humans, about 10,000 years ago, and even a little earlier, we basically have eliminated, say, for instance, all the megafauna. This, these are the megafauna that used to be in Mexico that, that were basically wiped out about 10,000 years ago by human hunters. That had a huge effect on our, on our continent and, and the shape and the ecology. That's not just a biological effect, a biological consequence, it actually has even geological consequences. And while we know about global change right now and rising CO2, that actually, while it's very, very drastic right now, it actually began a long time ago. It began even at the beginning of agriculture. The slide is actually supposed to be year BC. So even in pre-industrial ages, we were beginning to, our, our inventions, our technologies were beginning to affect the planet in a geological way. So we know about 5,000 natural minerals, and um, most of those minerals, maybe about 100 are very, very common, but the rest of them are actually very rare. We've made, manufactured 1,000 artificial minerals, and some of them in very large quantities, like concrete which actually is in more abundance than many of some of the rare other natural minerals. And so in that sense, we're actually, again, having geological consequences with our inventions. It's a geological force, it's not just biological. So returning back to this machine that we're making with the extended the extension of our, of our minds into matter, what can we say about it? Well, one thing is, is that the most rapidly expanding quantity or item on this planet is nothing biological, it's nothing concrete, it's actually information. Information is expanding at 66.5% a year. Almost anything else we make over the span of decades is only increasing at 7%. There's no biological phenomenon that we say where, where things are increasing at that rate. And that information is um, in the realm right now of a million Zetas. If we keep going, there'll be a million Zetas in 2050. I'll tell you about Zetas in a minute. So the storage, if we 
counted up all the storage in the entire planet right now and we mapped it out. That's the graph of what it would look like. And, and um, that is the graph of, of, a, of an explosion, basically. <laughs> right? If, if you take the surface area per second that we are manufacturing it, it's an explosion. In fact, we were laying cable at the speed of sound for a while. Okay? I mean, that we were laying 340 meters of cable fiber optic in the planet per second for a while. That's how fast it was. And this digital world that's exploding, if, if, again, if you calculate the volume of stuff that we're making per second, it actually is just like a nuclear explosion. That's, that's, the, that's the, the power, that, that's the um, velocity that we're creating it. But unlike a nuclear explosion, which is over in seconds, fractions of a second, this is continuing year after year after year. So that's, that, that's the scale at which we're affecting this increase in the world. And again, if you just look at the number of transistors that we're making, it's phenomenal. And we're making this into one very large machine because it's all being connected. So you could think about all the transistors in the world that are now all being connected together in the same way that the transistors in your computer or your phone are all connected together. We're connecting all the devices together. And so I did a calculation of the number the total number of transistors and all the devices that are connected. And it's some you know, crazy number. These numbers are changing. They don't really mean anything. What's a quintillion anyway, right? There's a lot of them, <laughs> right? There's a lot of links. There's a lot of, uh, there's the speed at which this is happening. Is, it, you can almost hear it. I mean, literally, if, if you actually try to listen to it. And the total amount of memory is really huge. And the number of clicks that people are making, these little synapses, they're actually at the same scale as the human brain. The number of links and the number of clicks in the web or the number of links in the web is roughly approximate to the number of neurons and synapses in the human brain. That's, and that's, we consider the human brain the most complicated, complex thing that we know about. So that is, that's what the technium is. It's a scale right now. The only thing is your brain's not doubling every 18 months. Okay, and that's what we're... That's what we're doing here. So by 2040, this machine will exceed in terms of this kind of the mechanical count of its transistors and synapses. It will exceed the, 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 all the capacity or all the, the metrics of, of the humans on Earth. And that's why people like Ray Kurzweil will say, well, then, you know, then we'll have a new brain. But there's a whole hierarchy of the way things work in terms of autonomy. So right now, you can have a manufactured superorganism that doesn't do very much. It's just, it's just a very large machine that is just a machine that's very large that has its own emergent behaviors. It doesn't necessarily have to be autonomous. But it could be, that would be another phase. It would be you have something that shows some autonomy, maybe like, I know, starfish level. It's not smart, but it's autonomous, or a cricket, or a mushroom. You could also have a superorganism that had some kind of intelligence, maybe like a, a mouse. It's not conscious, but it's intelligent. Or, of course, you could have a superorganism that was conscious. Just because you have a superorganism doesn't mean that it has, it has to have consciousness, is what I'm saying. 
And I think that actually what we've made so far to date is somewhere just above the manufactured level. It may have some autonomy, but it doesn't necessarily have to. It's sort of like a technological mushroom, okay? A planet-sized mushroom that isn't necessarily smart, but it does have maybe some emerging autonomy. So there's other ways in which this has some lifelike attributes, one of which is that if you take uh, a plot of the metabolism of most biological organisms, it's 10 watts per kilogram or less, 1 to 10. And the data server actually these days is almost at that same rate. So you can almost see that these data farms have sort of a biological-like metabolism. In fact, you can, this is where the scaling laws come in because you can plot all the animals on a power law. So basically, per weight, they have a very, very strict adherence to the law of metabolism, and even plants do too. In fact, you can even scale up for lots of organized matter. This is Jeffrey West's work at the Santa Fe Institute. So cities, again, an extended type of technology, also exhibits the same power law. And it, in both the good and bad, both crime rate as well as wealth, both um, how, pe how fast people walk as well as um, the cost of their houses, that, that this kind of a scaling law is very, very particular to complex systems like an organism. And Jeffrey West actually noticed a very key thing, which is that while they follow a power law, which is basically defined as one on a log scale, things that were just slightly above one and things that were just things that scaled just slightly below one had a huge difference. There was a huge difference in their behavior, even though they were very close in the first approximation you said as a power law, that little difference made a great difference. And that was, if it was greater than one, there was unbounded growth. And if it was less than one, there'd be growth and then collapse. Okay? And so cities generally were super exponential, and organizations and companies were generally below one, sublinear. And the question really is, is, well, what's this technium as a whole? And we don't know the answer to that. Cities certainly obey this idea of unbounded growth. There are very few cities that have ever gone extinct completely. They're very slow to, they, they do, but they're very, very slow to. But we don't know what the technium as a whole is. We haven't actually been able to do that calculation. But I wanted to give you what a picture of this looks like. This is what the technium looks like on the planet. It is not this, which is from Star Wars. This is a planet that is engineered. That's not what we see. We see something much more biological than that. And to give you an example of where this may come from is there's a, again, a kind of an art project called the Degree Confluence, and it would take the arbitrary grid that we've applied to the planet with round, the round numbers, latitudes and longitudes, and where they crossed would form kind of a grid for random sampling. 
And so you actually have people whose hobby it is is to find a latitude and longitude with zero, zero, rounded, even numbers, and to go visit where they cross and take a picture. Okay, and, and, and that's the map on, of the ones that have been completed so far. And if you take China, the most densely populated country in the world, and you take some of the degree confluences that have been photographed, you'll see that the most populated country in the world is not very developed. It's some agriculture and um, a lot of wilderness or scrub and very few buildings. This is a random sampling of what China looks like. And if you take the earth, it's even more wild. It's the average place on earth is not developed. But cities are, and they are forming these kind of nodes like a neuron, in which they're connected by these communication threads, which are roads and other uh, communication devices. And so if you take the plot of all the cities over a million, you can kind of see they form a very uneven, kind of biological-looking pattern. Or even the megacities that are coming, or the megacities that will be there in 2050, this is a map of what the pattern of of human civilization looks like on this planet or will look like in 2050. Here's another view. You can see how spiky it is. It's not an even engineered coat around the planet. Human density, again, is uneven. This is mobile coverage, uneven. 3G, uneven. Here's the oceanic cables. These are the neurons connecting between the, the continents. There's a thousand floating sensors in the ocean right now. There's this whole network of ocean sensors, transportation routes, airport traffic looking like neurons, flight paths, air traffic, air connections, Twitter, social media mapped on top of a city or across the country. Here's Facebook connections, social connections around the globe, electrical grid, you can see it's these are the ten, excuse me, the thousand communication satellites around the planet in a halo. These are like a nerve system. That's, that's the pattern that we have. And there's a million eyes that we've added to that nervous system. Oh, a billion eyes, actually. Uh, a trillion eyes. <laughs> they're, ever, they're coming. <laughs> okay, so, so we're actually cloaking this thing with senses now. We're giving microphones and cameras and um, accelerometers, uh, moisture sensors, everything. We're connecting together in this kind of, uh, bio, our own biometrics we're feeding into this thing, as well as the quantified self, Gary Wolf and myself, trying to capture everything that we do with our own bodies. Um, and the Internet of Things, of course. We're Connecting everything we make, everything we manufacture, we're putting a little tiny bit of chip into it, and we're connecting it. And that is, that's the thing that we're making. So we have this super machine, and it, right now it consumes, this, the technium consumes three-quarters of the energy that we use. It's not really for our benefit directly. It's for the, you know, we have, we're heating our garages for our car. It's that sense in which the technium itself, for the benefit of other technologies, most of the energy, energy that we consume is for the benefit of the technium. And in fact, 5% of electricity that we use is just running the internet. And that will continue to grow. 
So this technium, this thing that we're making, is the longest running machine we've ever made. Most machines, the time life of, of any complexity that you can run it in is maybe hours, days, weeks, or years. This has been going on for decades. This is our longest running machine. But then another definition of superorganisms is that parts die when the whole dies. And so we are dependent on this machine. And if this machine did not work, we would not continue to live. So we are in a symbiotic relationship with this, this thing. And I want to come back then to describing it a little bit more because I mentioned it's obviously that we're kind of making a world brain. But, but it's not just that. We're also making a new sphere. We're taking all the humans in, on the planet and we're connecting them together and we're, we're, we're creating some kind of collective thought. And we're also, we have Gaia and we're interfacing with Gaia and this, what we're making is affecting Gaia. So there is, there is a sense in which those three spheres are part of this. And I would say, yes, we have the technium, we have humanity, and we have Gaia. And those three spheres of influence, those three spheres, spheres of activity and action are actually three faces of the big thing, whatever that thing is. Okay? It's, so this thing is... is, is, is Three, there are three corners to it. There's technology, humans, and nature. Gaia. And that, that is forming this planetary thing. It's not just the technology. It's not just us and our minds. It's not just Gaia. It's all three together. And interesting to me, taking kind of a page from Stuart's thinking, they all run at different rates. So Gaia is sort of operating on the scale of eons. Humanity centuries, and technicians is months or, or daily or something. It's just really, really fast. So, so these three things, one way to distinguish them is actually maybe talking about the rates in which they, they operate. So that thing doesn't have a name. It needs a name. I, I tried thinking about a name. So I first draft suggestion was I, I called the holosphere. The holosphere, unfortunately, is something in Star, Star Wars. is a little device you hold that has 3D in it. But I think this is a better use for the, for the name. <laughs> we can call it maybe holos. So the holos is all these, it's, it's, the, it's the human, all the 7 billion, 9 billion humans thinking to, to connected together. It's, it's all the stuff that we've made with our minds connected together. And it's all interfacing with Gaia, which itself is a superorganism. So... I'm calling that holos, just for the time being. And there, I think there are seven frontiers in this holos. One is new math. Okay, so, uh, you know, we had, it's, it's big. It's really big. The kind of numbers that we're talking about, even with, with data, is huge. 10 to the 30. It was like, we don't know how to operate that in real time. We don't know how to do that kind of math. We don't have algorithms that anywhere near allow us to, to manage all this complexity. It's way beyond anything that we have. And in fact, we don't even have really good terms. Right now, we're talking about exa and zeta. Well, we don't even have words that come after Yoda. 
We, we, there's no terms. We, uh, that, that's how blank this is. There's Lud and Hella. <laughs> but... Yeah, yeah. So uh, I think we could take like a mole, right? Ten, Avogadro's number, 10, 10 to the 23rd. We call it 10 to the 23rd bytes is one mole. So then we've got megamoles and gigamoles and petamoles or examoles. And if, you're, and if that's not big enough, then we can take a plunk, which is 10 to the 34th bytes, and we can talk about kiloplunks and megaplunks. I mean, we are going to be operating in this realm very soon. And this is a huge opportunity for anybody who's into math or computer science because we really don't know how to manipulate things at this scale. I call it zillionics, right? There's zillions of stuff. So we're going into zillionics. There's new economics. All right? We have one, there's one economy. There's not national economy. There's one economy. This, this is the beat of, you know, all the different major stock markets behaving as if there's one market. There is only one market. We have flash crashes where things, and this was a famous thing a couple of years ago where, where it just dipped. Nobody knew why. No one, has ever, no one has ever come up with any explanation. It just went down on its own as an emergent phenomena because there's one thing and it hiccuped. So we have slow earthquakes which can move, which can move through the earth without us really knowing it. And I think we're going to have thoughts happening on the super organism that we're not even going to be aware of because they're, they're, they're operating at such a wide, long frequency that we can hardly even feel it. Well, some of these ideas will be at such a large frequency or long frequency that we will have trouble detecting them. There's new biology. There are so many things that could go wrong that while we have, we know about flus and cancer and poisonings, but we'll have those equivalent on a superorganism. If you have a superorganism, it will get ill. It will have diseases. It will have phobias, compulsions, oscillations. That's, what, that's how these things operate. If, if, if you have a large system, you'll have illnesses in those systems. And so we were going to be confronting new kinds of illnesses. What are we doing? Well, there is a great idea of putting an internet in, in, immunology where you take some of the, the advantages that the immune system have and you import it right into this system. So you, again, you take a biological idea and you try to implement something that we have in our own bodies and other living bodies have, which is a very sophisticated system. There's no such thing as zero tolerance in the immune system. It's all about tolerance at different levels. But you, have some, you have, need some very sophisticated tools in order to make something like that happen. This, by the way, is an attempt to take an immune idea to spam, where you're actually not looking at the content of spam, you're actually looking at the behavior of malware as it goes through the system, the flows of it. So they can, even on the left was the ordinary flow, and on the right was a malware flow, and you could actually, without, again, looking at the content, just looking at how it behaves, uh, be able to discern it in a kind of immunological way. We need new minds. I don't like to think about AI. I think about utilitarian intelligence or artificial smartness. This is kind of this idea of a web-based service. We get it over the cloud. And because it's based in the cloud, the more people that use it, the smarter it gets. The smarter it gets, the more people use it. 
Recently, we saw this fabulous um, demonstration where they took the stills from about a million different YouTube clicks, uh, uh, clips and they took it to the AI at Google and they said, what do you see? <laughs> and it painted this picture, which is a cat. It didn't say cat, it just said, I see this. And it said, I, basically it's saying, I see this, I see cats <laughs> on the internet. It, no one asked it, no one said anything about cats, but I see cats. So AI is very powerful, and here's where I want to talk about the singularity. Um, I, 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 I think there's two kinds of singularity, strong and weak, and the strong kind is um, the kind of the Ray Kurzweil where we're going to make this super machine and it's going to make another super machine faster. And the idea is, if you look at these exponential curves, they're saying, look, they're in the near future, they're going up. But the problem with an exponential curve is that they, they're always going to go up anywhere along that entire path. They're going to go up, and they'll still be going up. So it's always near, and it has always been near for the past 100 years. So there's no, the exponential curve should not really inform this idea of a singularity at all. But Ray's idea is, is that there's two. Step one is you make a smarter than us AI. And then step two, you have immortality. <laughs> it's like, there's a lot in between there. <laughs> there's a lot in between there. And his idea is if you have something really smart, that will solve all the problems of, of health and immortality. But that's not the way things work. It's because biological phenomena take time, you have to do experiments. You could take all the super intelligence in the world and they could read all the literature, the medical literature there is right now, and you're not going to be able to figure out how to cure cancer just by thinking about it. I call that thinkism. A lot of these guys are really smart. They think the answer to everything is just thinking about it. But you need data. You need, you need to do experiments. And so that idea of the singularity happening just because we make something smarter than us I don't think it's going to work. But I do think there's one aspect to the singularity which is true, which is that it means that we, we can make something at a larger scale that we can't really see what's going to happen. We can't really imagine what something would, hap would, would be like at another level in the organization. And I think that sense of singularity is going to be true. If we have auto-enhancing AI, I think that's a possibility. I don't think it's going to make much difference when it's by itself, but I think if, if it's on the cloud, if it's, a, if it's the superorganism that's making AI, I think that's much more interesting. And I think that's actually much more likely that AI is not going to come in a standalone machine or standalone company. It'll occur at the level of the superorganism. So that superintelligence is not that it's super like, meaning it's better than us. I think it means that it's just going to operate at a different level. Because what we want is actually we want to make as many different kinds of minds as possible. And as I will talk about in just a second, I think it's really important that we actually have a different level of thinking. And uh, I think most of the new startups in the next 100 years are going to follow this formula, take X, add AI. That's going to be the way to do it. We I know about SETI, Search for Internet, uh, Extraterrestrial Intelligence, but David Eagleman and I are actually trying to do something called the Search for Internet Intelligence. <laughs> what would the evidence be that we would need to, to see to actually be convinced that there was kind of a superintelligence? 
What would, what would convince a skeptic? We don't have an answer, but I think it's a good question. We need new governance, and this is the last point I want to make. Planetary challenges require planetary thinking. And I use the word challenge because I mean both problems and the opportunities of the HOLOS require HOLOS thinking, which means we, we need to think at the level of HOLOS as well as we need to have a HOLOS kind of thinking. I mean, that superintelligence. But we cannot just imagine, we can't solve planetary problems without taking the perspective and, and, and taking it seriously, the idea that there is this superorganism that we're dealing with. I think we need cli climate shock and climate change is going to require geoengineering. It's going to require planetary scale solutions. Stuart Brand was instrumental in giving us a view of the whole Earth. And there's every astronaut who's come back, if they're not globalists, they're certainly thinking more globally than they went before because they understood that this is a system of three different types. Paul Outlet was one of the earliest inventors of hypertext. And he devised this idea of the world encyclopedia, the universal library. And not coincidentally, he was instrumental in this idea of the world city, the League of Nations, world government. One world government. Man, if you want to know about conspiracy and quacks, just delve into this for a second. It used to be on late AM, it's now moved to daytime talk radio. But any 12-year-old anywhere in the world will tell you that one world government is inevitable. The question is, what kind of world government do we want? There are lots of people trying crazy stuff. There are actually, you can get a world government passport. And sometimes border guards are uninformed enough to let you through, and other times they'll arrest you. So it's a really not a very useful thing to have. But the idea, there are many organizations and the people who are critics of world government have one thing, right, which is there's not an ounce of democracy in any of those. No one has ever asked, the World Bank's never asked me to vote on anything. The UN has never asked me to vote. But at the same time, they're doing something in the right direction. And ICANN which is not really in the same league as these others. I mentioned because it's, something that's trying to govern the internet. And there's a hope that, that through the internet trying to govern that in a global way, we might learn something about trying to, to do it in other ways. But there's a recursive dilemma, which is that who, do you, who decides who's going to, how this is formed, and who decides who decides? If you're going to have a vote, no voting system is fair. They're all fair in different way, unfair in different ways. But who decides what system there is going to be and who decides who those people are? So there's no way out of that. You basically start unfairly and you try to work towards fairness. But we actually don't know how to make a representative democracy for, seven, for 9 billion people. We have no idea really, how, how that would work. And there's a bunch of science fiction authors with Neil Stevenson and others called Hieroglyph, which are trying to promote this idea of working on big problems instead of little problems. Neil, I think, famously said, the best minds of my generation are trying to get people to click on ads. <laughs> Why not have them work on a big problem? Well, here's a big problem. 
how do we have representative democracy for nine billion people? Let's take this idea of a global superorganism for real. There are lots of challenges. I am really concerned about the fact that we don't have any rules for cyber war. We, we, we of course, are, are, Americans are very sensitive to the fact that the Chinese are breaking in. The Americans are breaking into the Chinese, we know that as well, but we have no rules about what's civil, what's honorable, what's acceptable. Nothing at all, we don't know. And we don't have a backup. There's, if, if this goes down, even if it's just a sickness, it goes down for a, long, a little while, we have nothing alternative. Everything's connected together. So this is a very serious, we should at least have a backup that will allow us to reboot. And we need Holo's thinking. Um, we need to have a mind that's actually bigger than ourselves. We need to have as many different minds as possible because some of the problems that we're engaged with cannot be solved by our minds alone. That's one of the reasons why we want AI. It's not so much that they're smarter than us, it's that they think differently than us. So we need to have different kind of thinking, planetary thinking, in order to solve some of the problems we have. This is just the beginning of the beginning. I feel nothing has really happened yet. 2014, everything that's happened before us doesn't really count. It's all going to happen afterwards. All the most important inventions of the next 20, 30 years have not been invented yet. So I'm very optimistic. I think that we can take this idea seriously to try to make a global holos and try and do our best to make it benefit us, all the species on this planet, and all the robots. Thank you. And that's my book, Cool Tools, which I think there's copies out there. It's self-published, and you should get one for your young friend. Great, have a seat. Uh, you said there were seven frontiers, and you only showed us five? That was a mistake. Sorry. <laughs> that was a typo. Sorry. <laughs> that was a typo. I, I think, you know, this Sorry. live, can't you come up with two more? <laughs> um, several versions of this question came in, according to Alexander. David uh, Kamholtz asks, Humans evolved in a context in which social groups were quite small. Mm. Even today, most decisions are made on a fairly limited scale. Mm. Can anyone naturally control technium? Should we even try? Mm. This was some of what you were getting at yeah. in the end of, you know, is this a democratic thing we're talking about or what? Yeah. No, there's kind of, I think there's a kind of a Dunbar's number where you have a, a natural size of the number of human relationships that you can deal with. I think that is... Um, natural, but, but uh, I think that um, right now we, we expect that we will understand this, and I don't think that we will understand it. I, I don't think we, we understand nature. We, we don't know how nature works, but we can still use it. So you can use things that you don't understand, even though you're always trying to understand more. I don't think that we will necessarily be able to understand or control it completely. So I think that is, that's gonna be a big step. That's a big step to acknowledge the fact that 
your child will no longer be under your control. And I think, um, you know, there's a famous book by Arthur C. Clarke, Childhood's End. I think that's where we're at, is, is that we may not have total control of this thing. But it doesn't mean that we aren't going to try to do the best we can to set it off in the right direction. Um, Darwin noticed that there was a pattern to how uncontrolled life mm. was uh, nevertheless patterned in how it emerged. And Jeffrey West spends time looking not only at cities, but at how these scaling laws apply in, in natural systems. Um, does that kind of understanding count? Yeah, I, I think... Um I think detecting the superorganism, we're going to approach it maybe like a second nature, where um, we will go to it in constant awe about its complexity and constantly going to to learn about it, to try and make it useful, to try and bend it to our purposes. But like nature, we'll never successfully be able to master it. Um, I think, you know. Again, Gaia is is beyond our understanding in, at some level, and um, certainly beyond our, our our control. And we think that of that as a kind of a good thing because it's had mm -hmm. four billion years of of learning, so it's very wise. Um, I think the technium does not have you know it has has two hundred years maybe. It's not very wise, but we can we can make it. We we can teach it. We, we, we can embed into it some of the principles that we want in our offspring. We, we are going to teach robots ethics, and by teaching robot, robot ethics, we are going to become better people. Because we do things, we drive down the road, and we actually don't even know what we believe. Mm -hmm. We don't know who we're going to hit. If we have to do that paradox of who do you hit, we don't have good answers. But when we have to teach our robots how to drive, we're forced to kind of go through our, our own beliefs and our own, um, our own ethics in order to, to teach them. It's like having children. They often force you to become better people. So I'm curious how, with the technium in mind and trying to understand the technium in mind and explicate the technium in mind, how you find yourself responding to sort of the, the daily course of news. So John Markoff had a piece in page one of the New York Times today about how you know, Asimov's first law of robotics is being routinely disobeyed mm -hmm. by these AI-driven uh, missiles now that uh, are fire and forget and are pretty smart and they uh, will select a tank rather than another kind of vehicle and hit it mm -hmm. and kill whoever's inside and uh, in Asimov's terms uh, cause harm to humans. Right. Is, Items like that come by you. What do you do with that? Yeah, so in this case, I think if we are giving decisions to these machines and they're making decisions that we don't like, mm -hmm. then we have to teach them better. We have to, we have to keep improving them to, until they make decisions that we like. It's not like we do, do this once and then that's the end. It's, mm -hmm. I think it's like, oh, um, that, was not, that was not a good decision. No, we didn't like that. Okay, we have to do that better. And, and so it's, again, it's like children. It's like, yeah, you, you, they, they make a mistake and you kind of keep 
reiterating, and, and you're often forced to think about yourself. And I think that that's the process that we're going to have with, say, AI and these robots that are being that we're giving some decision to. Mm -hmm. Is that well? Are these decisions that we approve? Do we like that collectively as a society? If not, let's change the the, the algorithm. I'm curious what the sort of conditions of health of self healing this kind of system has. Um, whenever there's something that looks like it's increasingly uh, accelerating and going exponential, uh, I grew was sort of came into paying attention and responsibility at a time that people thought that the exponential of population, human population growth uh, was absolutely catastrophic mm -hmm. and could go nothing but up until everything broke. Sure. And various ideas were put forward of you know, sterilants in the water supply and things like this that would somehow get ahead of that. And yet the system turned out to be just another S-curve mm. that is, in fact, now leveling off radically in the 9 billion we keep talking about is probably the maximum number of humans on Earth that we'll ever see. We didn't do that. Mm. That sort of happened mm. as a byproduct of people moving to cities for other good reasons that had nothing to do with worrying about too many humans. Yeah. Are the systems of this kind of complexity and self-connectedness mm. in some sense self-healing in that respect? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I do know that television had probably more effect on birth rates than anything else, and it had to do with the fact that women could see role models of women that they wanted their daughters to grow up to be. And we have a very clear map of that in India where places that TV was introduced, the birth rates fell very fast. So th that was not deliberate. Nobody was planning to that. That was not conscious. Is that in some ways a system effect? Would we see that on other planets? That's the, that's the question I always ask myself on, you know, if we went to visit another, another planetary civilization in, in the galaxy, would they also exhibit that kind of a pattern? I, I, I don't know. We're, we're stuck because... Do you have an opinion about that? Are there I, I, I don't know. I don't planetary civilizations similar or radically different? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good question. We, we, we really have no idea. And, um, Great, thank you. But, but I do think it's... I mean, part of the, the reason why Star Trek and others are interesting is that they, they let us ask that question. Is, is how much of this stuff is um, baked into a system, how much is, is um, going to be common. And we don't really know. But, but we can at least begin to... to, to We're certainly imagine. looking for that. Yeah. Uh, two questions here. David Lang asks, what fact or axiom causes the most problems for your technium theory? Mm. What still doesn't fit? And Kevin Kelly, <laughs> I don't know how he did this, asked... <laughs> What would be evidence that there is no superorganism? <laughs> so that's what, a good what's, question. What's wrong with this theory? <laughs> <laughs> so presumably you do bang yourself with this from time to time. What if this is all completely wrong? Yeah, and, and I think, um, as I said in the beginning, I, I would like to try to make this scientific rather than poetic. And the way you do that is you have something that's falsifiable. What could you say about this that was falsifiable that we could actually show that did, did, did not exist? And I think. Um, uh, I don't have very good, the reason why it's a good question is I don't have a very good answer to it. And I, th and I think the, um, 
But what I would like to try and do is, is to try and work towards having something that was falsifiable, a statement about this thing that we could say, well, if we discover this, then it proves that it is not happening or there's evidence that it was not happening. And I think um, it, it might look like, um, uh, you know, when we have X number of things connected for X number of time that we, um, that everything was explained. I mean, that we never saw any kind of behavior that we did not expect. And so that would mean trying to write down what kinds of things we would expect. Um, I don't know. It's, it's a very hard thing to, it's a very hard thing because there is a little bit of that singularity in the sense that it's really hard for us to see beyond into that level of organization. So how, how you prove the negative is, is, is tough. Well, some of you can break down the mechanism. So Gaia theory is challenged basically on the mechanisms level right. of, you know, are there really these self-enhancing and self-limiting mechanisms that Jim Lovelock imagined right. as hydrogen sulfide, you know, make clouds in the ocean because of uh, warming and things right. like this. And some of those have held up and some have not. Likewise, the singularity is pretty much based on an idea of a set of connected things all accelerating right. at a certain rate. And if they don't all keep accelerating at the rate the ray is drawing right, charts, right. then you would say, well, that particular version of thinking about the singularity isn't right because the numbers don't hold right, up. Right. Are there places like that in your technium theory that you could say that, uh, aha, uh, see, it's really happening, or hmm, yeah. uh, it's not? Another way to say that is, is, can we make some predictions about something that might happen? Good. So I might make a prediction that there'll be a one million person flash crowd that happens in the next 10 years. You know, but is that enough to convince anybody? I don't know. A physical one? or is Yeah, a physical one, one. Whether it's going to be like, like, a, kind of like a Woodstock where one million people will show up somewhere and everybody will be amazed. <laughs> but... It'll seem like, oh, afterwards, it'll seem like, oh, obviously, yes, of course. Uh, so, so I, I, you know, I, I, think, I think that would be one good way would be to make some predictions about behavior that we might expect to see. And I don't have those, but I, I think I would like to work towards that. Tyler Willis asks, does technology ever evolve far enough to limit or negate humanity's role in the whole Yeah. Do we fall out of the equation? I, th I think that's a, a, a very common fear these days because we see hmm. things happening fast. It's sometimes there's a, there's a sense that the speed is happening so fast that the, that, that speed uh, leaves us behind. Sometimes it's a scale. And um, the, the reason I guess I'm, I'm not as worried as many people are about it is because um, I've sort of seen what we've done with other species. I think there was a period of time where we didn't maybe care about uh, whether other species survived or not. But then we recognized that in every species is sort of a, a, a wealth, a bank of learning. It's, it, whatever species you can find on Earth has gone through the equal number of amount of evolution, has f almost four billion years of evolution in this thing, and, and, and that, that information, that that knowledge is actually can be useful to us and we need it and our lives are also improved or, or bettered by having multiple species around us so we're no longer interested in sort of getting rid of species we're actually interested in reviving species mm -hmm. and uh, i think 
Where do they fit in the technique, Gabriel? Well, I, th I think I think the question on that. I think what happens is, is that, as I'm saying, is, is that we want to have as many different kinds of thinking, as many different kinds of devices that we possibly can, because it, because there's going to be problems that we encounter where we need to have other beings or other kinds of thinking. That, that our type. See, the only reason to make an AI is not to make one like humans, but to make one different than humans, and so that. That is where this power comes from. We, we need collectively to have other kinds of thinking, other kinds of beings, other kinds of existence in order to solve the problems that we have made. So there's you know, one of the kind of romantic argument against letting languages go extinct is when language goes extinct, the world disappears. And it's not entirely romantic. Often when it's a native language, they have a whole bunch of knowledge about the other organisms in their system and what they're good for and how they refer to them and where they fit into their stories and so on. And it sounds like you're saying that letting other organisms go, you also lose a world mm -hmm. each time and thereby impoverish the one that we share. And I would say, and by inventing other kinds of beings, we actually are creating those new worlds. We're creating more of our world. That, that, that we, um, it's, it's by, ha by surrounding ourselves with many different, I'll call them beings, many different kinds of thinking, many different perspectives, many different creatures, we actually better our world and better ourselves. Because right now, we're on a century-long identity crisis. We don't know what humans are good for. <laughs> we don't know why we're here. We don't know why we're different than, than anything else. And so we need all these things to help us answer that question about what is a human and what's a human for. Well, this is sort of in Danny Hillis's story and as part of the founding of the Long Now Foundation is he had the feeling that uh, what had been humanity's story for a while, which was essentially control of nature, is a story which is, with the arrival of the Anthropocene, kind of complete. Or at least the completion is in sight. And that we're now in this tangled process of trying to figure out what the next story yeah. is. Right. Do you think the next story is, in some sense, the technium? Yeah, I, I think the next story is going to be this, um, another level of our existence and uh, uh, again, I think uh, uh, maybe leaving behind the last remnants of our tribal nature, which is nationalism. I mean, nationalism is, is a terrible disease that needs to be, that we need to cure ourselves of. And I, I think that um, uh, that next story would be a more of a planetary story, and it's going to be more of, a, of a, an all-species story, and it's going to be one of you know, multiple minds story where, where we have, we are making minds that will have certain dimensions that are better than us in thinking and together all these different kinds of minds thinking we can solve problems that we can't solve right now. I mean it may be that parts of physics are simply going to be unsolvable by human minds alone. We, and we may need to make these other kind of minds to help us even understand quantum gravity. A uh, question we avoid at Revive and Restore, is it okay to bring Neanderthals back? But it sounds like you wouldn't mind a bit. No, I, w I would love to have Neanderthals. <laughs> who who wouldn't? I mean, it's like... Well, say, say why. Why? I think one of, one, of the, one of the sources of our arrogance is the fact that we don't have any other competing intelligences 
we've basically probably murdered most of them. Um, and that uh, by having... Uh, by having something else that's similar to us, it will force us to be better in a sense of being more distinguished about what we're doing, being more um, careful about how we do it, and having, this is like having competition in a sense, we, we have someone else to reflect back to us, and we can see ourselves a little better by having something else similar to us. And I, th I think that Neanderthal would be a tremendous gift for us to realize more about who we are. Uh, well, speaking of space, uh, here comes a question from Australia. Uh, Nick Hodges asked, given that we've just landed on a comment, what do you impact do you think the Technium will have on the solar system and, oh, mm. what the hell, galaxy? <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm sure that we'll, you know, diffuse into space. We've already begun with, with comets and we'll have one-way missions to Mars uh, as a reality TV program, I'm sure. Where you uh, buy into one-way <laughs> one missions. Well, yeah, th that's, that's the current plan right now. Is there's a one-way mission, one mission to Mars, and it's, a reality, it's financed by being a reality TV program. The entire world will watch to see whether, how long they live. Mm -hmm. And um, <laughs> there's no end of people who would volunteer for it, and uh, we'd learn a lot. And so, so, so in Branson's, so uh, you know, uh, lower space tourist vehicle crashed and killed somebody the other day. Yeah. You see that as not slowing anything down. No, absolutely not. Makes it more interesting. Yeah, there, there will still be people who go. And, and, and I think that, that um, that's pretty inevitable that we, that we um, even though I think it's really a bad idea to send meat into space, <laughs> I think we will. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's... So it sounds like, in that case, you're a fan of downloading us into non-meat things. That yeah, I, 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 th I think with virtual reality and those kinds of things that we could... Um, the lag time is horrible. It is. <laughs> yeah. Move over. Half hour later. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's terrible. But I think with AIs and stuff like that, um, we can... We, we can do a lot of it. I, I don't think that, that it will prevent us from actually having people who want to risk their life to go out there, and we'll do everything they can. But I think, it's, I think most of the exploration will be not done by, by bodies. It'll be done by our extended bodies. And there, there will still be some, you know, the, the equivalent of the Amish in space, you know, who, who want to be there in their bodies. Danny Hillis, when he was talking with Brian Eno earlier this year, said that if he was a grad student now, he would not be studying computer science, he'd be studying synthetic biology. Mm. And this was in context of uh, Brian saying that Mars is really boring, why would anybody go there? And uh, Danny basically saying, you know, we can make versions of, of humans, biologically, that... Uh, would be right. meat, a version of meat that's welcome in space and would uh, very much enjoy the, the right. nature of the low sunlight and low gravity and Right, exactly. So I think Danny's Mars. idea is to make people really, really small. Mm -hmm. yeah, you, make, you make humans this big because they, they, they do better in space. This is Rusty Schweikert's <laughs> comment. Is one the first thing you discover in space is there's no use for legs whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they just get in the way. All they're good for is a sort of hook. <laughs> 
Yeah. And, you know, we probably know the genes that make legs, and so we can do yeah. about that pretty quickly. Well, I think... What, what, or turn them into you know, right, right. more I th- arms. I think one of the central questions in the long term, in the very, very long term, is going to be whether we remain one species or many, ah. and whether we remain of one mind or many. And I think... Um, the technium is always going to be one, it sounds like. Yes, so. but I think we will speciate. Uh, and I think there'll be naturals and people who will say, under no circumstances will I or any of my descendants ever have our genes touched. And then there'll be other people who will say, like, you know, tomorrow, yeah, sign me up mm-hmm. to do anything you want uh, or transform myself. And, and I think that that will la- lead to a natural um, forking in, in us. And so I think we will have multiple. Do you have a sense of pace of that? Is that this century? No. No, no not this century. No. No. I, biology is so difficult to move. My wife who's here, I mean, she works with... Uh, living things, and it's so so hard to to change things because it's four billion years of accumulated trial and error and working, and it's so hard to to move that. Uh, that I don't, I don't I don't I think that's a very slow process. Well, I'm not saying it's impossible, but I think it's really slow. Yeah, well, in code terms, it's a classic ball of mud. Yeah, and trying to reverse engineer. Uh, was what was never engineered. I mean, I think we will do it piecemeal, but I, I think it's a long-term project. So is it the case that, you know, is Holos another big ball of mud? That uh, it's, in a sense, not programmable? Uh, yeah, I, I think there are going to be aspects of it that are not programmable by us. But the point is, is there's a lot, probably a lot that is. And it's like, um, it's like world government. Okay, world government is inevitable. But the question is, what kind of world? Mm-hmm. There's still lots of choices to, to make. And I think the Holos is the same thing. There's, there's, there's a huge amount that's just beyond anything that we could do and program. But there's still so much that we can do that we can focus on, on the parts that we have some influence and power over. To what you can hope for the best. Uh, Don Means asks, what does Holos want? What does Holos want? <laughs> um, I think it wants what many systems want, and, and that is one is it wants to survive and prosper and to alter its environment to be more conducive to more of itself. So it will, it will take all the money and energy that it can possibly get and brain power to try and make it more complex, more energy efficient, more diverse, more um, mutual, I mean, it, it, it'll do the same thing that evolution has done. It's basically in its extension of, of evolution forces, the self-organization. It's going to do what all self-organized entities have done, which is to um, bend whatever it can to make it more conducive so it can deepen. So I think what it wants, the holos wants to be more hollow, hollows. It wants to be more of itself. And I think that's sort of what all we're, we're all working on. Is holos... Holos, the way you describe it is, is, in a sense, kind of engineering. In what sense is it science? It's not science right now. It's still on the verge of, on the edge of poetry, but it, want, but it needs to be taken scientifically. It needs, we need to treat it and, you know, describe it. Uh, this is my first attempt. At, we should try to describe this. We should test it in the sense of... Um, 
make predictions, uh, try to understand it as much as we can to... Um, well, what's, what experiments come to mind to you? Do you get a sense of some of the currently unknown, but it would be nice to know Yeah, I mean, what we don't know is so vast, but I mean, I think even, you know, having kind of global logs of, of, of the traffic, a, a global um, um, measuring its rhythms in energy use, uh, metabolism, treat, you know, looking at this metabolism as a, as a whole. Um, I, 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 so in the first sense, I think the first step is observation, collecting data. Mm -hmm. about the thing. And then we can begin to try and um, do some experiments, make some predictions, and collect more data. So, so right now, what I'm suggesting, I think we're at the stage of let's just observe and collect as much data as we can about it. And then if people treat it seriously, let's make some hypothesis, some predictions. And then what? Then... I think, um, like anything, I think that if we, even, if we even just had a sense that it was real, then we could begin to um, pay attention to it. And I think we could, in the areas that were possible, we could um, train it. You know, we, we, we could bring in the things that we want it to be. We could guide it in terms of the places that it's growing. If it, if it has to have ethical, if, it, if we want it to be friendly, then we want to bring all these things into mm -hmm. it, that we want to engage with it. So, so I'm a big believer that the, way we, that the way you deal with technology is that you engage with it, and you engage with mm -hmm. it by using it. So we want to use this, and to use it, we have to understand that it's there. So, uh, so um, what we don't want to do is is to prohibit it or prevent it or um, pretend that it's not there. Um, we engage with it and saying, okay, this is it. What can we do? Let's observe it and then interact with it. Is there a comfort in doing that? Does mm. the, the, the bee mm. abide in the hive in some <laughs> is, the bee comfort, is the bee comforted by the hive? Is, that, is Holos comforting? That's an interesting question. Um, You're not terrified by it. Many are. No, I'm not terrified by it. I haven't thought about being comforted by it. Um, <laughs> I think I think it's you no. Know, it's a it's a fair question. Uh, would people ever sing a song for it? <laughs> would Would we ever write an ode to it? I, I believe we might. And, and I actually, I think that the technium, as it continues to complexify, even to stages where it really is beyond our understanding, that we might even come to it like a cathedral and feel an awe in it, uh, or like a woods or a redwoods, in, in the sense of that, that we would really find it inspiring in some message. So, so I think eventually, yes, we could come to it. Maybe we would even feel proud about it. Oh yeah, my holos. It's, it's that holos is just really, yeah. It's possible. I mean, I, 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 I you know, I think that would be better than, than talking about your nation. And I think, um, huh. um, okay. you know, it's, 
Could we be proud of it? Uh, well, that's maybe a good thing to aim for. I'd like to make a holos that we would be proud of. And it would probably be proud yeah. to have you do that. Right. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> this seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.